You've reached the Every Little Thing helpline. Please leave your love story after the tone. Hi, ELP. This is Erica, and I'm calling in response to your uh, call out for uh, What Have You Done for Love? I once, with my mom, was seeking revenge for her in the middle of the night, and it's a big story. Okay, bye. Hello? Hey, Erica. It's Flora from ELT. Hi. I'm on pins and needles to hear this story. There is a whole thing to this that's, like, uh, unbelievable. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. So I was 16, and my mom had been... Man, how do I explain her? She was just a force, like a force to be reckoned with. You didn't want to mess with her and you didn't want to mess with us. And she had things stacked against her forever. And so people would feel able to mess with her. Underestimate her. Yeah. And then they'd learn the hard way real fast. Like what? Oh, there were so many things with her. Like we used to play jokes on my stepdad. He was like this macho hunter guy and taking care of business and thinking he's all tough. And she made a lot of fun out of that. Um, (laughs) Like one time we got this little pony and we were always broke. We lived out way out in the country and we're broke. And we got this pony like from the bargain bin. It was, (laughs) ends up being like super mean and would bite and kick and all this stuff. And that was my pony. um, My little pony. (laughs) My little pony. So she she gave me a handful of strawberries. She's like, crunch these up and put it all over your face. Then come screaming in here and tell tell Doug that that your pony kicked you in the mouth. And like I did that. He was like losing his mind. He was pissed. He actually left the house that night. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's what your mom does to her loving partner. What's the act of revenge you got involved with? So my mom had been working as like this small businesswoman with a group of her friends. They were all very good friends. They loved each other. It was like they were all our family. And they would travel around all over rural Kansas where there's like literally tumbleweeds blowing around. She would travel you know, hours and hours, hundreds of miles a day to set up these businesses for weight loss and health and like teaching people how to take care of themselves. And it was with her best friend. She loved it. Well, she started getting sick and she wasn't, you know, positive what it was and she needed to be closer to her doctor. And so she asked her group of friends, is it okay if I take over this business in our hometown so I don't have to travel and work so much. And they said no. Well, (laughs) that really pissed her off. And when those ladies wouldn't work with her, with, with her health and her family, like she took it as this kind of betrayal that just opened up the Pandora's box of revenge for her. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more. So it's like two in the morning and I get woken up with my mom dressed all in black. She has a headlamp on. She throws this black (laughs) cat burglar gear at me and it's like, wake up, we're going to go get him. (laughs) She's like, meet me in the alley. (laughs) 
So I go back there. I hear her throwing up. And I'm like, what is going on? She's like, cover your mouth and your nose. (laughs) I got it. And I'm like, what? What do you have? Well, she had all these syringes with like the hypodermic needles. And she had gotten skunk toxin. Wait, like she's loaded up a bunch of syringes with skunk spray? Yeah, she loaded them up. And... (laughs) It's like your nose and eyes and mouth waters and you're like gagging and like, it's bad. It is toxic. Where did she get it? From my dad was a trapper and a hunter guy. And he would just collect it from his kills so that he could lure other animals. It was like a, that's what these like bohunk trapsmen, you know, I don't know, but. He had all this stuff everywhere. Did she just snatch a few vials or did she get him involved in this caper? No, he's actually like, leave that woman alone. (laughs) She didn't do it this much to deserve this. And like, he would just be like, stop, you're going to get us all arrested. Okay, so you're in the alley with your skunk spray syringes. And she had them in like a little fanny pack thing. And you're heading to the former business partners? Yeah. And we were just like, just be normal. We're just on a walk. And I'm like, at 2 a.m., like dressed in black, like nobody thinks we're just on a walk, whatever. But, you know, it's a sleepy town. Nobody saw us. We go to this little business where they park their van. And I don't know if it's still like this, but where your car window meets the car, there used to be like a little spongy rubber thing. Yeah. She sticks those syringes through all four windows, (gasps) squirting all that skunk everywhere. (laughs) She puts it under the handles in the vent. (laughs) Couldn't put enough in there. And then she looks at me and she's like, Who are we going to get for you? Why? Why did she say that? What was going on? So she knew I was going through kind of a similar thing. She knew I was like really upset with my friend group. It was like that first heartbreak in school. I didn't know at the time I was gay, but I'm pretty sure I was in love with my best friend. We had been friends in middle school and then through high school, like she wasn't gay. I didn't know I was, but she must have felt something because she just like totally dropped me from talking, hanging out, anything. And I was just heartbroken. I'm not the kind of person to like confront the hurt, but my mom saw it. Like, I remember one time we were, I, I had to get to softball and she was like, I just want to know what's going on with you. I don't like seeing you like this. And I was just shut, shut it down. I can't get into it. And so she saw that it was really affecting me. And so I think she just kind of wanted me there to show, you know, like, I will protect you in any way I can. You know, that's a mother's love, right? So the skunking wasn't just an act of revenge. It was an act of love. Yeah. It's like this tough kind of love, but like nobody's going to fuck with me or my daughter, you know? And like, we're going to make them pay. 
like if you knew the whole history of our lives, like she was always fighting for us like that. She's someone you could really count on to have your back. And for me, I think seeing her going through the same kind of thing, I felt some compassion towards towards her and wanted to support her revenge. Uh, even though it was insane. <laughs> Did you get the satisfaction of seeing the coworkers barf in their van? No, no, no. We didn't go by there. We just never, we never talked about it again. But I know this really religious woman called her up screaming at her that she needs to repent. One of the people in the business? Yeah. So you think maybe they suspected? I'm sure they knew. Like, there's no doubt. Like, who else in the world could that have been? You know? My name is Mario, and this is my love story. Mario's love story begins when he was 18. He was a trumpet player in a mariachi band and a huge fan of the legendary trumpeter Wynton Marsalis. Wynton famously played a special custom-made trumpet made by the company called Monette, and Mario wanted a Monette, too. In 1995, I got a Monette catalog, and... (laughs) I'll never forget it, right? I used to just thumb through the pages of this Monet catalog, and there was the Monet Ajna. And what the Ajna was, was a version of one of their higher-end horns called a Raja. And Wynton Marsalis played a Raja. So I'm like, oh, cool. Like, he plays the Raja. If I can just get this Ajna, I would be like, this is like my dream, right? I was just obsessing over this. In the catalog, I read that introduction for the Ajna about a million times. On the bottom, it had this little asterisk that said, Ajna is a Sanskrit term and means the center of human intuition and creativity. And, you know, that just sparked my intuition, my, how do I get this? And your creativity (laughs) for fundraising for it. Yeah, totally. I was making about $15,000 a year at that time. I was working at a law firm. I was like a courier slash paralegal assistant. So this horn was about two thirds of my income. My first car was a Subaru Justy. And, you know, it was like a tenth of the cost of this trumpet. And one of the secretaries I was really close with, I must have talked about this horn every day. And uh, she finally got sick of it. And she goes, you know what? I'm sick of hearing about this horn. She called one of the local credit unions and said, here, let's talk about getting this kid a loan. And uh, I managed to save the first $5,000. And then I got a loan for the rest. So in 1997, I got the horn. I remember opening the box when it arrived at the law firm. And uh, I just remember opening it up and shaking. As you, you peel off each layer of the bubble wrap, you could just see more and more of the shape of the horn. In the catalog, the picture was black and white. So I always had a black and white image of it. And then to see it live and just see the gold 
and touch it. Yeah, it was definitely love at first sight. That was the start of my my life with this trumpet. So when I used to practice at night, I would turn off the lights. And I remember shortly after getting the trumpet, practicing one night. And so it's, it's pitch black. I can't even see my fingers, can't see the trumpet. And I remember just playing. And it probably took about a half an hour, but once my ears opened up, I could feel the horn resonating. I could hear the room. It like unlocked this part of me that I felt I could play anything that night. It was like a religious experience. forget that feeling. So what did you do for love? Okay, so one thing about the trumpet, since you're basically spitting into the horn, you have to wash them like once a month. I, I washed the trumpet and I laid it out on my bed and it was drying. And like I just see it there laying in its gold, beautiful shininess there was no way that I was going to move it and risk it falling, risk it dropping, risk who knows what. I mean, I truly love this horn and that was the safest place for it. So I figured, you know, who am I? I'll, I'll, I'll sleep on the floor. And uh, woke up with a, with a very messed up back. And I look at the bed and there's the trumpet, like nice and snugly and cozy. Did it feel like love for real? I mean, yeah, it was because I could just play my trumpet and, you know, that's how I talked to the world. And this trumpet just made it so much easier for me, for me to come out through the horn that, you know, it was, it was an extension of myself. And so, yeah, I was totally, totally loved. After the break, an all-you-can-eat-pray-love trip. Hey, Beth, it's Flora from ELT. Hi, Flora. Thank you for calling in. Oh, my gosh. I was just outside my dentist office, and I thought, I love my love story. I'm going to call and share that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, where does this love story begin? 
It begins on a cruise ship out by the coast of Mexico called the Conquest. Ooh. <laughs> and I used to have this really plush gig where I would get to hop from cruise ship to cruise ship, applying flame retardant on the theater sets, all the drops and props. So <laughs> what a crazy job. I loved it. It's such a simple job, but you really have to be somebody with no like commitments to land or life on land and a valid passport. <laughs> but I was separated from my first husband and living by myself in the house that we had bought together and kind of just excited to be alone and to be able to travel and not answer to anybody. Hmm. Was there like a smidge of this being an all-you-can-eat-pray-love trip? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. So I was working backstage and they introduced me to the pyrotechnician and he was just bending down, tying his shoe and barely looked up and said, hello, my name is Jolt. And then uh, <laughs> that was our first encounter. So you're the flame retardant person, and he's the pyro guy. Yes. <laughs> and one of the other stage technicians said, hey, all of us go to this one restaurant when we're docked in uh, Mexico. And they had found um, an authentic Transylvanian restaurant in this tiny little port. And it was... Such a strange little twist. So it turned out that Jolt was from the same region in Transylvania. So he was kind of like, you have to try this and you have to try this. And this is my favorite from back home. And I had a little sparkle like, wow, this guy's really like, it's so cool that he's, he wants to share so much with us. And he was really cute too. So that night was the crew party and Jolt was going to be the DJ. <laughs> and so we all went to uh, go buy wine and stuff to have ready for the party. And he offered to walk with us to the grocery store. And I don't know, I'd like to say there was sort of an unspoken understanding that maybe something could happen. But he was DJing the party. And so I kind of just had to bide my time and stay awake until <laughs> four in the morning. It's like my nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> to get any private time. <laughs> I feel like I'd be like taking a power nap. I don't know. You know how the thrill of the hunt sort of can get into your veins? I had something that I wanted to achieve. And <laughs> I had my sights set on him and I just had fun dancing the whole night and then just waited for the party to wrap up so I could get some one-on-one -on -one time. And what happened? <laughs> we, we had about three hours of one-on-one -on -one time. <laughs> and, and then I had to take a little tender the next morning. I had to get dressed and get my act together so I could take a little boat off the ship to catch my flight home. What was the goodbye like? I programmed my number into his phone thinking, I mean, maybe someday we'll talk. But not really anticipating anything coming of it. But then four days later, he called on the phone. 
What happened next? So after his contract was up, which was a few months later, I said, this might sound really uh, irresponsible and insane, but do you just want to stop in Philly on your way back to Romania? Even though we had still only spent maybe three hours total in person together. And he said, yes. And when I went to get him at the airport, it felt very much like there's no turning back. And then he went home and then I went to see him for a few days. And um, it was too difficult to, to fly back and forth. So we just went to the courthouse and eloped and got green card married just so we could keep dating. What did your family think? They were shocked. I mean, everyone was kind of shocked because I never, I never even told anybody I was getting divorced. So on the outside, it just appeared that Beth has just gotten divorced and now remarried this stranger from Romania. So it got back to me that, you know, behind closed doors, people were giving it I give it two years at the most. I get, you know, people were already setting expiration dates for this experiment of mine. And um, I think my my own family, they just kind of figured, there she goes again. (laughs) (laughs) People think you had like lost your mind. I'm sure. I'm sure. Maybe I did a little bit. What, ha- what, what happened? We literally just celebrated our six-year anniversary last night. We didn't celebrate yet, but last night, yesterday was six years. So tonight, we're going on our first date since before the pandemic. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. We made a baby for extra credit. So we've got a sweet little three-year-old in our lives now, too. Do you think about it as fate? Like, how do you think about this this love story? I think about it as extremely lucky because I almost didn't go on that ship. Like, what if I hadn't? What if we hadn't gone out to that restaurant that day? Just absolute luck. I don't know if I really believe, I guess I believe in fate, but I really just, I mostly believe in luck. We're really lucky people. My name is Jeremy. I live just outside of Detroit. And uh, this is a story about my love for my father. So I'm taking, I'm taking half of my life savings, which uh, it's sad, sad to admit it takes half to, uh, to afford this. I'm going to, um, I'm going to purchase this, this muscle car. It's uh, American Motors AMX down in Florida. This love story begins 50 years ago. With Jeremy's dad. My father, his name's Joe. He worked for Ford Motor Company for 35 years for one of the big three. Um, working as an engineering guy, uh, doing a couple of different roles there. He is retired. He's 79 years old. But um, he's always been a car guy. And of course, he turned me into a car guy as well. When he was younger, before he actually had his job at Ford, he wanted to get a muscle car of some sort. 
he was the kind of guy who would always be very measured and very careful about his decisions. But a few years after he got married, finally got his first good job. He got enough money together, he bought himself a muscle car. This is the late 60s, 68, 69, the years of the greatest American-made muscle cars. And when he looked for a fun car to buy, he wanted to buy a car that was an engineer's car. And the AMX was the car to get. His was a 68 white AMX. It's got the fastback and the two doors and the chrome bumpers. It had the mag wheels and the big V8 sound with side pipes. Looked very impressive and very intimidating. Big engine, and it made all the right noises, right? I'm looking at a picture. They're beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think they're pretty stylish. And it's just a little different, you know, and that, that's, that sums up my dad really well. Where did he drive it? Um, when he worked at Ford Motor, he would take this car. So there's a, ro- a road by Ford Motor Company in Dearborn called Rotunda Drive. It's the well, kind of one of the main, main drags where all the, uh, the engineering buildings are. There was a brick wall on one side of the road. He'd go in very early before work, and he'd drive that muscle car that, with the side pipes blaring along the road and listen to the sound of the exhaust bouncing off the walls and give himself a big smile. And it was just this little, little burst he would have, you know, uh, when he was going to work in the morning, just one little opportunity to kind of be free. I think it was one of those little releases you get as a married dad doing the responsible thing most times. What happened to it? He had to sell it. Basically, when he and my mom needed to buy a car that was practical for the family as the family got bigger, he had to let the car go. Did he talk about it? Did you know about it growing up that he had had this car? Oh, yeah. It was always his favorite thing he had. He would talk about the power that car had and the noise that it made and and how it was just completely unreasonable. It wasn't a practical thing. You know, it was it was the most foolish thing that he probably did when it came to making a big purchase. And he loved that. It was oftentimes we'd reminisce about the AMX. And on the desk in his office, he has a one of those you know metal diecast models, like size of a shoebox of a of a white AMX he found somewhere. You know, he it stares at it when he sits at his desk, and he's still thinking about it. It's still important to him. So uh, I, I, you know, I had talked and joked with him over the years. One of these days, I'm going to go buy a muscle car to maybe go in and finding an AMX. And he says, "Oh, there's not enough of them left, and it'd be hard to find, and it wouldn't be worth it. You know, you'll end up spending more money than you should." and you know, you're better off. Buy something new, Jeremy. Be, be sensible. And then it's just never really happened. But I'm going to tell the, the sad part, and I'll try my best to hold it together, but it's relatively recent news to me, so I apologize. So he, in September, was diagnosed with leukemia. And um, we're not sure how long he had it. Uh, he's probably not got too long uh, before the thing ends up eating him. So sorry, Jeremy. Yeah, I, that's how life is, right? You don't get to pick how you go. You know? um, so um, when we found out about his, uh, about his cancer, it, it kind of kicked me in the pants and said, if I'm gonna do this, I gotta do it now. I wanted to find a white one. I tried my darndest, but I found a green one. And more importantly, the, you know, my dad being the engineer, 
mechanically it's the same as his it has the performance shifter and the same engine posi traction back end while the technical parts are the same and it has the brown the brown interior like he had it has from his point of view from our point of view when we sit in that car it'll look just like he saw you know back in so many years ago so um i want it because i want to bring it back here to michigan and take my dad for a ride in it and hopefully if he's strong enough have him take it take it for a drive as well Wow, that's so sweet. Do you know where you'll drive? Where you'll go? Oh, it'd be nice to take him to Dearborn. Does that road still exist? It does. Uh, yeah, I just want him to relive that experience. So that's that's what I'm hoping for, and, and hopefully it'll be a memory he'll uh, he'll have. To give him that feeling of freedom. Yeah, that would be really special. So I might be able to do that. Uh, it would be really great to give that to him. Memory for him and me. Do you think he'll be surprised? Yes. <laughs> well, first words he'll probably say is, Jeremy, why did you waste your money on this? <laughs> I'm sure he'll be so thrilled. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he will be. Thank you to everyone who called in with a love story. If you have a burning question you cannot find the answer to, you've tried. Call us. We can help. 833-RING-ELT. And just a heads up, in a few weeks, ELT will exclusively be available on Spotify. It's free to listen, so I hope you will sail over to Spotify, search for every little thing, and hit follow. Every Little Thing is produced by Jahi Whitehead, Adley Robinson, Stephanie Werner, Phoebe Flanagan, Annette Heist, and Flora Lickman, and edited by Jorge Justin Caitlin Kenny, with help from Nicole Pasulka and Doug Barron. Scored by Dara Hirsch, Bobby Lord, So Wiley, Billy Libby, Emma Munger, and Mario Montoya. Mixed by Dara Hirsch. Every Little Thing is a Gimlet production and a Spotify original podcast. Listen for free on Spotify. Goodbye. Uh, you asked about people who have done 
the most extreme thing that they've ever done for love. And so I wanted to tell you about this time when I was a little kid and I took a pee test to pass the drug test to get into the United States post office for my uncle. And it worked. And he worked there for a long time. And there it is.